red shoes? What's the matter, Morty? Great gowns, beautiful gowns. Fashion has changed. No, it hasn't. Hello, my name is Lauren Garoni. And I'm Chelsea Fairless. And welcome back to another episode of the Every Outfit Pod. Chelsea, I know this is an audio medium, but I must say your forehead is looking perfectly frozen. Oh, thank you. Yours looks frozen, too. Thank you. Yeah, you can't tell what emotion I'm emoting right now because we got some complimentary hashtag smart talks. On September 11th, in some suite in the One Hotel. There's no better way to commemorate 9-11. Lauren, <laughs> that's not the worst thing you've ever said. There's going to be worse things I say today, I can assure you. Yeah, yeah, true. But aside from your perfectly frozen face, you have some other great life news this week. That's true. I'm a proud owner of a millennial money pit. Oh, Honey, I'm so proud. Yeah, guys, I bought a house. I am a homeowner. So how is it going so far? You know, it's interesting to mount an indie production and purchase a home in the same year because the principles are very similar, especially if you're renovating a home, which we are. We bought an ugly an ugly duckling of a home. You would say it's perfect. It is not an ugly duckling. Look, I get it. It's very 80s. Like the kitchen looked amazing, but also it looks like some place where like aliens could like conduct autopsies or something, but in a good way. It was a house built in the 70s that they redid in the late 80s and then never touched it again. And it's fascinating because we both lived in New York. I believe this has plagued everyone who's lived in a metropolitan city. These owners, landlords, specialed their own home. When they first built the house, they put this like Brazilian rosewood wood panels on the wall. And in the 80s, they just decided to paint over it white. Like no primer, no gloss, no nothing. It looks good though. It does look like a filming location from Less Than Zero. That it absolutely does. The fact that you've demolished that bathroom actually hurts me. However, can I tell you that when they did demolish that bathtub, they found a colony of dead mice underneath it because no one ever installed it properly. It seems like rodents are a theme for us this year. Oh God, yeah. I guess they do outnumber us. Yeah, how's your car doing? The rat came back. Oh no! I, I honestly can't even talk about it. Like, I haven't even been able to drive the car. I've just been driving Tat's car. But I am probably going to have to light it on fire at this point. You know, not to be the terrible capitalist that I am, but I am renovating a home. So perhaps we unlock a new Patreon tier <laughs> to see you. <laughs> so I can fucking sell my rat car and get on with my life. Well, yeah, I was going to say a new payment level to see us set the car on fire. Look, you've had worse ideas. <laughs> yes. Going to a Smart Talks activation on September 11th was a questionable idea. That is a very questionable idea. I'm full of questionable ideas. Anyway, we're going to return it to its former beautiful 70s glory or else I'm going to lose my mind. I'm realizing renovating a house is no different than indie film production because everything costs too much. You can't actually do anything it's all problems right like you can't do anything you actually want to do you have a great vision turns out it's too expensive for you to actually achieve you have to spend a ton of money on stuff that people aren't even going to see so you're basically the rat house girl from tiktok 
I know. I spent two years making fun of this girl. No, no, no. Here's where she and I are different. We're not piecemealing the renovations. We're doing it all at once, which is her key issue. <laughs> we should maybe mention who we're talking about. Do we even know this person's handle? I just call her the rat house girl. Yes, your wife and I are obsessed with a woman who lives in South Florida named Gabby Dolacek, who bought a house during the real estate boom of 2021 and bought a house essentially without an inspection or it did have an inspection and they were like yeah there's some termite damage but like we'll get the house tented it'll be fine turns out it wasn't fine and so they've blown through all of their savings to fix this house themselves room by room but now that we're in the second year of them living in this house a majority of their projects are redoing the stuff they did originally because they didn't do it correctly. As is the case with my car, I think the only viable solution is just lighting that house on fire. Correct. Can't Home Depot sponsor that or something? I don't want to be scabs. I stand with the WGA. As I'm learning, a lot of reality TV does employ WGA writers, but we'll get into that in a second. But... I think you and I should pitch a show called Millennial Money Pit, which is just people our age who purchase homes. And you're the first episode. Yeah. <laughs> Lauren and Paul. <laughs> I think that would be a great show. That's the new Patreon tier that needs to be unlocked. Millennial Money Pit? Yeah. Well, also because we've been talking about this insane 80s house, can we at least put a photo of the kitchen before it was demolished? on Patreon just so people can see my point of view and then maybe everyone can hash it out. For sure. And I will just say that Paul salvaged the cabinets in the kitchen and is going to use that in his office. Suddenly I've become the cunty head of the Historical Preservation Society. Just imagine the house that Alfred Molina lived in at the end of Boogie Nights. That's basically what the house looks like. And that's an incredible house. You're just proving my point. As I say it, and look, we've been talking about this way too long. When we got there, I was like, <laughs> oh, we don't need to change anything. And then one thing led to another, and, you know, we're basically doing a gut run now. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, what else can we talk about? We went to maybe our new favorite theater in Los Angeles. Oh, the theater at the Academy Museum? The best theater in Los Angeles. I think that is the closest we can get back to the arc light. No, I agree. We saw the restoration of Greg Araki's Nowhere, which was amazing. And I've never seen it not on a VHS. So to see it on a big screen, to actually be able to hear half of the dialogue was a true treat. I know. For, for those who don't know Greg Araki's work or are just familiar with the Doom Generation, Nowhere was his follow-up to the Doom Generation that got basically no release. There was no DVD of it. It was very hard to find. I watched it on YouTube probably from a ripped, terrible VHS copy. So that was very funny when Greg Araki was introducing the film and he's like basically bemoaning everyone who's seen it on a shitty VHS and it's all of us. Yeah, like that was the only way to see it. But if you haven't seen it, it's basically about a group of teenagers that are all like fucked up, horny, suicidal drug addicts. But it's really funny. I know there's been this back and forth on the internet because of a resurface Petra Collins article or maybe a new one she gave that she was in talks with Sam Levinson to direct Euphoria, that Sam Levinson came to her and was like, 
I wrote a show based on your photographs. But while I was watching Nowhere, I was like, oh, Euphoria owes so much to its existence to Greg Araki's work. Highly recommend. I think they're screening it in New York next month. Also, it was fun because a lot of the cast was there. We saw Mina Suvari. Who I had completely forgotten was actually in the film. And we saw her at the restaurant before the screening. I was like, what's she doing here? She looks great, by the way. We also saw Rachel True, who's such an alt-girl icon because she was the star of this and also the craft, of course. Sadly, there was no James Duvall as he got COVID. <laughs> but he did appear via FaceTime. Speaking of gay male directors... Who raised us? <laughs> yes. This week, I also witnessed the unveiling of John Waters' star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. It's actually on the same block as Bordner's, like right across the street from Musso and Frank's, for those of you who live in Los Angeles. Well, yeah, his star is in front of the Sam Edmonds yes. store, which is a great resource. As John Waters talked about, because I did watch his speech, is a great source for entertainment memorabilia, scripts, what have you. As you saw, Ricky Lake and, and Mink Stoll spoke. John Waters obviously spoke. I'm probably butchering what he said, but he said something to the effect of like, I hope the most desperate, fame-hungry Hollywood rejects, like, walk over my star. I believe he started with, I have never been closer to the gutter. <laughs> yeah, it was just so great because he truly belongs on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Not because it's prestigious, but because the Hollywood Walk of Fame is full of drunks and rats and tragic murals of famous people, and that's very on brand for John Waters. It's weird, his work and its ability to penetrate the monoculture of the 70s, 80s, and 90s into the 2000s is the reason that like we exist in many ways. He gave birth to many creative babies. Yeah, Greg Araki <laughs> being one of them. But because of the way our culture is now, there's not really a niche celebrity like him anymore. And also, he's such a throwback in the sense of, he is someone that wants to be famous. He loves it. And I feel like that's so out of fashion these days. That's true. But he also, I think, is very public because he has this rabid fan base that is so obsessed with him. They would even on a Monday afternoon go and see his unveiling of a star on the Walk of Fame, which I've always wondered when I see other celebrities who I don't care about, like, who are these people that just go and watch it? I know. I always wanted to go to one of them, but there was kind of like no person that like, I guess I cared enough about to know that it was happening in advance. Like normally I just see on Instagram, like, oh, Kirsten Dunst got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. That's cute. I don't get that heads up ahead of time. I know. How did you get that heads up? I think I just follow enough like John Waters fan accounts to like know about that. Speaking of celebrities that aren't as fab as John Waters. We're about to get into a segment I would like to call Are Celebrities Okay? This is also kind of like the bad news segment. Like, is any of this news good? No, this is all horrible shit. So let's play our bad news theme then. <laughs> Only on every outfit. So on September 10th, as you probably know, Drew Barrymore announced on social media that her show was coming back, despite it being struck by the Writers Guild of America. Although, this is where it gets confusing, per SAG rules, she is required to show up for work. Six days after this, she posted a video that was sort of a non-apology apology, wherein she said, I know there is just nothing I can do that will make this okay to those that it is not okay with. And I fully accept that, and I fully understand that. 
Turns out she couldn't fully accept that because it did not go over well. So much so that over the weekend, she deleted that video and the announcement that her show was coming back. And then on Monday, she was like, oh, wait, there is something I can do. I can pause my show until the strike is over. She said in an Instagram post, I have no words to express my deepest apologies to anyone I have hurt. And of course, to our incredible team who works on the show and has made it what it is today. Look, it's insane that she decided to resume the show, especially because you know there would be people physically protesting outside of the studios every day, and it doesn't seem like Drew Barrymore is the kind of person that is equipped to handle that. That said, while she fully intended to scab... I have had a parasocial relationship with Drew Barrymore since I was like a child, and that's not about to end because she's scabbing. No, she's still mother, but... (laughs) But mother is scabbing. I think this highlights a conversation that has honestly been going on since the pandemic, but has really come back this summer between Oprah and The Rock starting a foundation and asking others to donate their money instead of just, you know funding it themselves. I mean, don't talk shit about Oprah and The Rock. Sorry, I I can't handle that. But anyway, continue. I get the sense that Drew Barrymore kind of didn't think her show was going to get protested. Clearly, if she knew the reaction was going to be what the reaction was, she would have not brought the show back. And I think that because she did course correct and she did apologize and she did get publicly shamed and we know that she doesn't have the temperament to handle that i feel like the punishment kind of does fit the crime when someone course corrects their bad behavior we have to stop giving them shit like there is this unnecessary purity test and not to sound like bill maher about this that like seemingly never ends it's like all right she made a mistake she acknowledged it she's doing the right thing we're gonna let her go And speaking of Bill Maher, he too was like, well, my show's coming back because, you know, I waited until Labor Day and obviously there's no deal. So I'm going to have to bring my show back. I can't keep doing my podcast club random forever, guys. (laughs) But even though he didn't admit that he bowed to pressure, he too is not bringing real time back, which now it's like, well, what the fuck are our parents going to watch on Friday night? I know. I really do feel bad for them. It's a void that can't be filled. Think of the boobers. They are suffering with their content. (laughs) Well, you know, again, he made the right decision ultimately. But of course, it was only after Drew Barrymore got fully canceled. Also, Lauren, I have a question for you. How is the talk not resuming production, but the view has been on the entire time. So I've done my best to research this. And basically, the view was the first out of the gate of these talk shows to return, did it quietly, and were and basically are like, fuck it. Like, they are definitely in violation of the WGA rules. They had WGA writers. They returned without them. Well, and Whoopi is obviously in SAG. On-air talent actually by SAG are covered by the network television code. So they are obligated to return to work. But per WGA rules, they shouldn't return to work. But The View is basically like, fuck it. It seems like not until the Drew Barrymore show controversy did people start to notice like, hey, why the fuck is The View back, actually? Look, Whoopi does address the writer's strike at the top of every single episode. She's like, guys, just so you know, we still don't have our writers. Like, we stand in solidarity with them, blah, blah, blah. With The View, it is kind of a different thing because for the most part, it's like, there's not writers for The View. Like, there's writers that are obviously writing Whoopi's, like, 
introductions and shit like that but everyone's just talking off the cuff about what their opinions are if anything the problem with the view is that like most people don't prepare and they just kind of say whatever in the moment right well I think that's what they're trying to lean heavily against I mean if you put a gun to my head and we're like what talk shows have WGA writers? And I'd be like, none of them? Like, this is a huge shock, even to people who were participating in this season of Dancing with the Stars, that they were technically crossing the picket line because Dancing with the Stars has WGA writers. I don't know. I feel like exceptions should be made. Maybe I'm a scab now. But Dancing with the Stars, like, is anyone coming to Dancing with the Stars for its well-crafted storytelling? Like, could you imagine if the Kardashians can't come back because we learned they, too, have WGA writers? (laughs) You are the the view connoisseur. I have picked up on a few things. It seems like shit is getting buck wild on the view. From what I understand from the internet, mid-rant last week, Whoopi Goldberg just asked one of the co-hosts if she was pregnant? Yes, and by one of the co-hosts... You mean Alyssa Farrah Griffin, who is the newest co-host, the conservative co-host who worked in the Trump administration. Yeah, that was fully crazy. But these kinds of moments are why I watch The View. It is crazy of Whoopi, though, because it's like, who knows what Alyssa's situation is? Maybe she is pregnant. Maybe she's having fertility issues. Like, it is a fully insane thing to just blurt out on air unprompted. From what I've learned from Twitter, if an older black woman says you're pregnant, you should probably take a pregnancy test. Is that a fact? It's a Twitter fact. Guess what? I'm not calling it X. It's Twitter. Look, I wouldn't be surprised if she was right because Alyssa's reaction was just like, no, no like a little too quickly instead of like, bitch, what are you talking about? Which would have been my reaction. It just reminded me of when Kelly Ripa was first on Regis and Kelly. They had a psychic, I believe, who was like, are you pregnant or you're going to be pregnant soon or you're with child? And Kelly Ripa had just started the show. So you knew nothing about her life. And that's when she had to announce. She's like, not even my parents know. But yes, I'm pregnant. So I was sort of expecting that moment to occur. I think we might get that reveal soon. Also, I want to say I have previously disparaged Alyssa for her very sinister work history. But I have to give our girl props because she is weirdly good at being on The View. I'm not like saying that her politics are great, but she it's actually kind of incredible because like Sunny, Joy, whoever will literally tell her that she's like an evil, worthless piece of shit to her face. And she lets it roll off her shoulders like nothing happened. And she spins it around to like make a coherent point which is a skill that not a lot of people on The View have because everyone gets really emotional. And that includes a Joy, a Whoopi, a Meghan McCain, a Rosie O'Donnell. So I think that Alyssa is actually like kind of quietly killing it. And maybe soon she'll be going on maternity leave. Given my love of how messy the Real Housewives are, it seems like I should be watching The View daily. Well, I can also just send you the best moments. Like I did send you the clip of the reveal of Matthew McConaughey's wax figure that happened on The View recently. So that seemed to be a combo bit, right? Because he was ostensibly there to promote a children's book. He's never there just to do one thing. It's like he was promoting (laughs) the children's book. He was giving Joy a foot massage. He was talking about his 
nonprofit. He's unveiling his Madame Tussauds wax figure. He's doing everything. He's doing it all. He's single-handedly saving Hollywood. But I guess he wasn't really scabbing because he was only talking about stuff not pertaining to his film career. That's right, because he and Whoopi were careful not even to mention the fact that they appeared in the 1995 film Boys on the Side. Where she played a washed-up lesbian, like you know, rock singer. And he played like a cop with like a buzz cut that was like in love with Drew Barrymore. Well, I was going to say the film also starred Drew Barrymore. Rough week for people that started the film Boys on the Side. (laughs) This is all very dark and it feels like with the speed of which everything that has happened in the last week, it's almost old news at this point to mention Mila and Ashton's failed apology for writing character letters for Danny Masterson? Well, I don't think it's old news. This story is still very much at the forefront of my mind. And I still can't believe how crazy that video is. If anything else, it sort of revealed that they're both like not really good actors. And it fully looked like one of those videos of a journalist being like held captive by terrorists. Well, they were because I imagine their publicists were just off video making sure that they said everything perfectly. I love the tweet and I'm glad I'm not the only real estate deranged person who was like, it's clear that their publicists were like, shoot this video outside, outside, you know, this barn, it'll look very humble. But I've seen their Architectural Digest home tour, and I know exactly where they took this this video. So I guess, wait, we should probably explain the situation for people that haven't been breathlessly following the Danny Masterson trial. So Danny Masterson was convicted of multiple counts of rape. So in anticipation of the sentencing, they asked a lot of his friends to submit character letters for the judge to basically you know, ask for leniency in the sentencing. I don't think that Mila Kunis and Ashton Kutcher thought that these letters would necessarily become public. I don't know if you actually read them. Oh, yeah. Basically, it's like, hey, man, he's a father who kept me off drugs when I was very impressionable. So, like, maybe you only give him a couple years? Yeah, like, he's my bestie, but also, like, my, like, unofficial sober coach. Or something, which was crazy because that really was the main thrust of both of their letters. Although I think Mila's was less fucked up than Ashton's because Ashton's letter literally said, I do not believe he is an ongoing harm to society. Right. Which is insane because he's literally a convicted serial rapist that has several other accusations leveled against him. To be fair, he did start his letter by saying, I do acknowledge the conviction, however. And the victim's desire for justice or for something to that effect. It's like... Yeah, obviously they want this man locked up for the rest of their lives so they can, like, sleep at night. This past summer, I think, has really highlighted how far celebrities are from current culture. Because, one, they either didn't think these letters were going to get out, or if they did, they didn't think it was going to make that much waves. Certainly, they didn't think that people would be digging up clips of Mila Kunis and Ashton Kutcher from 1998 on the Rosie O'Donnell show where Ashton Kutcher explains that Danny Masterson bet him when Ashton Kutcher and Danny Masterson were 20 and Mila Kunis was 14 to slip her the tongue when they kissed for the first time on screen during that 70s show. They're so fucking creepy. I mean, we've known that Danny Masterson is a rapist. This has been around forever, basically, or for at least the last 10 years or so, to my knowledge. I understand the reality that they've known this man for over 20 years and they were his friends and they probably 
believed whatever he said and took their side. So on a human level, I get it. But like, Lauren, I love you, but if you were convicted in a court of law of multiple counts of rape and suspected of killing the dogs of one of your victims, I'm sorry, our friendship is over. They're crazy for that. You know, that's really hard to hear, but I get it. <laughs> Look, I don't ask for much. It is so difficult to even get a rape conviction, let alone three. That has to stand for something. But if someone came to you and was like, would you just write this letter? I'm sure they were like, what's the harm? I'm, I certainly don't think that Ashton Kutcher thought that this would cause him to have to resign from his anti-child sex abuse organization, which evidently didn't do anything really to stop child trafficking, but did more to criminalize and demonize sex work. Obviously, our thoughts are with the survivors, but I also can't stop thinking about his wife, Bijou Phillips, who officially filed for divorce this week. Thank God. It's interesting, the discourse by, I would assume, Gen Zers, younger millennials that are not really familiar with Bijou Phillips of like, she knew. It's like, I get it, but like, if you just knew her background, I think we should just let up because Bijou has had a very rough fucking life. Yeah, Bijou's life is the closest thing to a Shakespearean tragedy. It is like straight up, like dark, sinister, depraved Hollywood Babylon shit. The story of... Bijou Phillips and her sisters is worthy of like a multi-part you must remember this series like it's it's crazy I first came to know her because she was kind of like an out of control it girl slash model in the early 2000s she was on the cover of Italian Vogue she was dating Sean Lennon she was in that very famous Calvin Klein basement porn ad campaign that we talked about in an earlier episode. And she was kind of this wild child. And I guess she was also an actor. She was most famously in um, Larry Clark's Bully. But she kind of retired and married Danny Masterson and became a Scientologist. And do you want to get into the fucked up shit with her family? Yes, she's the daughter of John Phillips from the Mamas and and the Papas, and Genevieve Waite. Also a model-slash-actress, Richard Avedon Muse, swinging 60s kind of gal. The point of this is that she also has two sisters, Mackenzie Phillips, who is a famous television actress from the, I guess, 80s, and China Phillips, who you know as the blonde from Wilson Phillips, who has since become like a born-again Christian. This is an incredibly dark topic, but it was... Slightly amusing for me to watch people try to figure out why Billy Baldwin was writing a character letter for Danny Masterson. It's because it's his brother-in-law. Yeah, because China married him. But basically her sister Mackenzie, this was maybe 15 years ago or so, wrote a memoir and she accused her dead father of rape and ongoing incest. If I may say, it's a little more fucked up in the sense that she wrote a memoir that revealed that she had a consensual affair with her own father. It was only after she wrote the book and multiple people said to her, including Oprah, that wasn't consensual, that she then had to be like, Oh, I was raped by my father. So that's something we got to witness in public. No, so I mean, it's like, yeah, girl, like incest is not consensual ever. But it was a very dark and tragic story. And quite tragically, Bijou Phillips publicly came out against her sister and basically said she was lying. Whereas China, the Wilson Phillips born again Christian, like went on Oprah with Mackenzie and like supported her and stuff. 
But I I don't know. Time heals all wounds. I do follow all of them on Instagram because I'm demented. And I did see that the three sisters were together at Mama Cass's like Hollywood Walk of Fame star unveiling a couple years ago. So I believe that they have worked their shit out or whatever. But it's a miracle that they're all still alive based on how they grew up. And if you've read Mackenzie Phillips' memoir, which... I have and I highly recommend the events leading up to the abuse like you completely understand why that happened like it's almost like not even that shocking by the time you get to that because their childhood was so fucked up and oh sorry I forgot to mention that they're all heroin and cocaine addicts except for China I think well the Christianity saved her from that. I was going to say in regards to Bijou that Mackenzie came to her when she was 13 to tell her that she was having a 10 year long incestuous affair with their own father, which not to speculate might have had something to do with Bijou's own heroin addiction. This I just I honestly didn't think that the story of their family could get more tragic. And here we are. Unfortunately for some tragedy begets tragedy. Uh, I hope the victims can find peace. I hope Bijou can find peace. And um, I hope Danny Masterson rots in in jail. But anyway, I don't know how we transition away from such a dark topic. It's time to talk about fashion, but I guess (laughs) I would give this segment the subheader, is fashion okay? Fashion might not be okay, or at least Kathy Horn doesn't think that fashion is okay because she wrote this article for The Cut called Lost in the Machine. If you aren't reading everything that Kathy Horn is writing, you are doing yourself a disservice if you're someone that's interested in fashion. Before we get into the article, could we just discuss this copy editor to writer division? Because when the article was advertised on online, it said that fashion has a talent problem, which is a much more clickbaity title than I imagine Kathy Horn gave her piece, which is Lost in the Machine. Yeah, it's weird. Like if you text it to someone, it has like a different title than what it is when you actually log in and read it on the cut. But we will, of course, link to this in the show notes. But basically, she's just saying that like... Like, luxury brands have kind of abandoned, like, actual fashion designers. Like, all they really care about is making money, is immediate growth, is generating a lot of hype really quickly so that they can sell something really quickly, and they're not really thinking about the long term. Really, she's asking, is fashion even fashion anymore? Because no one seems concerned with actually producing new style, new clothing, new fashion. She remarks that only Prada and Balenciaga work at the high level of expectation these days. And that fewer and fewer designers are actually focused on fashion. She actually has this bitchy statement. She's like, they're focused on something else, like creating collections around a new seasonal theme, say the 1940s. I'm like, ooh, this feels like a very pointed uh, criticism of Dior. And she cites Dior and Chanel, and she's like, they're not pushing fashion forward. They're not taking risks. They're not giving us new silhouettes. They're not pushing fashion forward in the way that these brands have historically done they are just kind of reproducing like the same things that have sold well for them before but again with these different seasonal themes whether it's the 90s or it's Mexico or whatever she's not divorcing the idea that high fashion has always been a luxury item She's more talking about these houses increasingly being focused on this nebulous idea of luxury and, dare I say, quiet luxury, which every time I say it, it makes me feel like Reynolds Woodcock and Phantom Thread when he's like, I hate the word chic. What the fuck does that even mean? 
It's like, yeah, what does quiet luxury mean? Bags have always been expensive. There's always really been logomania. But this is something different. And it's nebulous and it's very hard to chase after, which is, I think, what you saw with Alessandro Michele's exit at Gucci. These luxury conglomerates are no longer interested in playing the long game with a designer, with a sort of a young, innovative, disruptive designer. Kathy was saying, I don't think it was in this article, I think it was in another article that I read of hers recently, where she was basically like, Rick Owens' early collections were shit. Like, if he wasn't just selling the leather jackets, like, that brand would have just gone under. But because he had the years of, like, evolving his skills and, like, honing his techniques and, like, really defining his point of view, now he's, like, one of the most brilliant designers in the world. And no one really wants to do that. Like, no one... I, I feel like if Alexander McQueen was came out now there would kind of be no place for him in the industry really which is sad no because this article also highlights with people from the industry saying that even if you're a young designer unlike the 90s where you'd be taken from your label and given a prestige house that basically just was not producing anything interesting anymore and you could revitalize it these are already revitalized brands who want to be more revitalized and really more revitalizes more money so there's no place for anyone anymore they're not going to take a young designer it seems and put them in a house like a chanel or a Dior anymore, which is no different than what's going on in the entertainment industry, right? You have these indie directors that make a film for less than a million dollars, then they're given $200 million to make a Marvel film, and their vision is nowhere in the film because it's made by committee. Like Nia DaCosta, the filmmaker who's behind the new film, The Marvels, just did, just did an interview where she was like, Well, this is Kevin Feige's film, and I knew that going in. Kevin Feige's the head of Marvel, which is like a real cool way. I mean, that would be like if a young designer went to Dior and was like, well, it's not really my collection. It's, you know, the executive suite at Dior's collection. But it really, and all these things impact the quality of the work. It's like we know that like Stanley Kubrick's movies would never get financed now. Yeah, if a young McQueen or a Galliano came around now, I don't... Phoebe Philo. I'm curious because Phoebe Philo's collection, I believe, was supposed to drop this month, right? Like when it was initially announced, but we haven't really heard anything about it. So I'm, I'm wondering about that. But I'm also wondering if her return could possibly live up to the hype of her absence because sometimes people go away for too long and then no one cares. Like I feel like this happened with Tom Ford. It was like Tom Ford's coming back and then we were like... Mm. But Tom Ford is someone that works for a very specific clientele and sort of is one of the engineers of why we are in this crisis with the fashion industry. The idea of being a designer that's a brand in and of yourself. I'm talking about even when he was at Gucci. And this unbelievable year after year, seemingly unlimited growth that a fashion brand could have, which is just not possible. I think the scariest statement that ends the article is from Sydney Toledano, who's a LVMH executive. And I guess this is where the title of the article comes from, which is, the machine of the industry will produce the designers of the industry, which just sounds like we're going to start making fashion designer industry plans. She is really correct, though, that there's not enough risk taking happening, especially with the big houses. I mean, certainly Demna is taking risks. I also think that Jonathan Anderson is taking risks at Lueve, even just the way the hard pivot that that brand did. 
brands aren't doing hard pivots these days. Like I feel like McQueen collections were so different from one season to the next. Same with Galliano, all of that. We just don't get enough of that now. Speaking of which, should we discuss the fact that Sarah Burton, after 13 years, is exiting McQueen? Look, she did some very good work there. The gowns were astounding from a technical standpoint. There aren't a ton of contemporary British designers that have achieved that level of craftsmanship in their work. But at the same time, it started to feel redundant. It started to feel stale. The clothes in the store never really captured the magic of the runway pieces, which I think is just a problem in general with a lot of fashion houses now. That's true. And I think her appointment to McQueen was a very in vogue thing that feels like it's not done as much anymore, which is this was the right-hand person to McQueen. And when he tragically passed away, she rose up to take over the creative director position. In the way that Phoebe Philo was Stella McCartney's right-hand woman when Stella McCartney left Chloe to do her own label, Phoebe Philo took over. But it seems like it's much more fashionable to pick a name to take someone, you know, what, are we going to take Alexander McKelly and put him at McQueen now? Well, no, because I can't imagine he'd want to work for Carrie. I feel like it's more likely that someone that is not famous that worked under him at Gucci might get that job, right? Because the only big name person I could think of would be like Ricardo Tisci, who's can make gowns, who is very gothic. But I feel like we kind of need a new energy and a new vibe and someone that's going to put the edge back into that brand because people used to be shocked and horrified by those fashion shows. And I think that we need a little bit of that back. Like that's been completely erased from the brand. Well, do you have a thought for who might replace Sarah Burton? Or are you going with an underling at Gucci? I'm going with Gucci underling. I mean, it should be Alessandro Michele because he can do the crazy gowns and the crazy shows which is what I think of when I think of McQueen and he can also do handbags which is something that they never really figured out I wonder per capita if McQueen's highest selling item is the skull scarf still to this day I don't think so I think it's the sneakers maybe like it seems like sick and depraved but people are like really into those so my suggestion and this is why I hedge my bets when you were like this is the worst thing you could say I, I think this may top that because my pick to replace Sarah burden is philip pline that's the most disgusting thing you've ever said the idea of mcqueen becoming just a generic rock and roll brand actually makes me want to kill myself but i wouldn't be surprised at this point also okay i have a couple other thoughts about this richard quinn is a strong candidate because he's gay he's british he's clearly kinky if his shows are any indication and he loves a ball gown And he's already kind of making work on a couture level. And he probably knows the right person to hire to make a handbag or whatever. And he has a similar working class background as McQueen did. Dolara Findakulu has had very few collections, but she's basically making McQueen fanfic right now. Like her worldview and her idea of beauty is kind of the closest to McQueen. I would say the same thing about Elena Velez, who's a younger New York-based designer. Both of these women like have proved that they can make beautiful clothes. But again, it's are they good creative directors? Could they produce good handbags? Like these are all the concerns. I think those are two great picks because if you gave them the Keurig backed budget for runway shows, I think you could get those 1990s, early 2000 era McQueen level runway shows. Yeah. Like those are people who should be given sizable budgets. 
Absolutely. Also, Moa Lola, who just showed at London Fashion Week, clearly wants this job. She's talked in the press about how she wants the job. Her last collection was basically an audition for the job and had a lot of McQueenisms and silhouettes. But of course, she took it in a very streetwear direction but I do think that that was a cool collection and I do think that at the very least it's like it's edgy I just want I want some edge I want to be shocked and horrified I want to see a fashion show that makes me vomit okay then (laughs) I don't Sarah Burton wasn't giving me that I'm sorry (laughs) should we talk about other London Fashion Week stuff yes but before we get into that I do just want to mention because we miss this in the post and just like that Hayes owner of Keurig Francois-Henri Pinot just bought a majority stake in CAA did you see this it's fully like the apocalypse yeah he spent seven billion dollars to buy out a majority stake of the biggest entertainment agency in the world like why do you need to try and conquer another industry You're already at the top of the fashion industry. Like, how much do you need to be able to sleep at night? I don't know. Or is he just a supportive husband who wants to see his wife, Selma Hayek, achieve her dreams, Chelsea? You're right. It could be that simple. The Selma Hayek cinematic universe? That sounded sarcastic. The work she did with Frida that was fucked over by Harvey Weinstein, I would like to see more creative output from her and more movies. Does she want to act? Probably not. It seems like actresses, especially actresses that went through the meat grinder of the 90s and early 2000s, like a Gwyneth Paltrow, like a Cameron Diaz, like a Selma Hayek, Kate Hudson, who have an income stream outside of entertainment, are like, I'm good. Yeah. Come back to me with an A24 film or a Ridley Scott film where I get to be a fortune teller and have weird lesbian energy with Lady Gaga. (laughs) Oh, right. Right. She did do that. But that was in the family. Okay. London Fashion Week. Burberry. Thoughts. Because this is now kind of the, the most anticipated show of London Fashion Week. He's being smart. Instead of going down the tried and true Logomania streetwear route, he is trying to use visual signifiers of Burberry beyond the tartan. And I have to give him that. However, I don't know if like the enduring image of Burberry is a chain motif, which seemed to be omnipresent in the collection. Okay, I actually really liked the chain prints. I thought they were gorgeous. Well, what is that supposed to represent? The knights on the horses of the Burberry symbol? Oh, I don't know. It's probably jewelry or hardware or some shit that they found in the archive. It always, it's, you know, it's got to tie back to something really trad and British, I'm sure. If we had bothered to read the show notes, we would probably know what his intention was with the chain prints. I read the show review. There's nothing that explained this. I did a control F for chain. Couldn't find anything. It seemed a little like horse bitty. It felt like they were like equestrian chains. Well, yeah. I mean, a horse girl aesthetic is forever enduring. That's evergreen. I also do think that those thong shoes were a strong point. I think the biggest course correction of this collection was having a color palette that was more accessible because I think the first collection was so specific that it kind of like it was hard to imagine like what you would buy or what would be useful in one's wardrobe but of course he's very strong in accessories and I feel like those thong shoes are a strong point yeah I thought when you said course correction you would get into the dress silhouettes it reminded me of Phoebe Philo's Chloe collections like the 2003-2004 those like low slung boho chiffon dresses the middle section honestly didn't do much for me they completely lost me between the chains and the gowns at the end which will look fabulous on Dua Lipa or whoever oh 
Oh, yeah. In the middle, there was some uh, spring, summer 2004 Chloe era dresses in there. You want to get into Simone Rocha, your favorite? I mean, love. What a sleigh. Truly. Rosettes and roses everywhere, even as underwear. I've been thinking about what Marissa said on our episode last week about how there aren't that many things for women that are just kind of unapologetically hyper-feminine in the way that Glossier is, in the way that the Barbie movie is. And I feel like Simone Rocha is like one of those things that exists that is just so wonderful and that because of that has instantly built this like very devoted cult following, which is so impressive for a smaller brand. I thought it was nice to see her branch out in her silhouettes. I thought, especially in the separates, it felt like we got a new silhouette. I'm thinking about the white satin rosette crop top with the tuxedo pants or the silver pants and the tool top. I feel like when I think of Simone Rocha, I think of that kind of voluminous dress that she's known for. Well, I think this is just kind of a British design trope. Like British fashion designers love to make dresses for adult women that look like little girls birthday party dresses that are then like deconstructed that's what half of the designers in london fashion week are showing but i think simone rocha does it the most successfully and i agree that especially the first section of the show felt like a bit of a departure for for her or a new look and then the like sheer like organza dresses with the actual roses in them was just so beautiful and and kind of felt like a really girly evolution of like whatever that Margiela collection was where he just like duct taped roses to some model's chest. I have a question for you, Chelsea. Will you be wearing the Simone Rocha X Crocs collab that debuted during the show? Okay, funny you mention this because they've been making that style of croc for a hot minute. The difference is like the Simone Rocha like pearl gibbet. So I'm like, are they selling the whole shoe? Are they just selling the gibbets? Like what's the vibe? A Crocs PR person, please reach out. I'm not personally a Crocs person like outside of my home. Like I own a couple of them that I wear around the house, but like I haven't yet attempted a high fashion Crocs look. But maybe I'll start. I mean, I love a heeled mule. So those like four inch croc ones really captured my attention. So I might be rocking them. I love that for you. Speaking of fashions that are, let's just say, more mass market, shall we discuss Naomi Campbell's Pretty Little Thing collaboration? Next week, we're going to be discussing the Supermodels documentary that just debuted on Apple TV. We wanted to give you guys some time to watch it. But, you know, I was really taken by her relationship with Azadine Alaya, who she calls Papa. This was not a great way to honor Papa, let me tell you that. Well, it actually wasn't even so much honoring Papa as honoring, like, whatever came out in, like, the Alaya collection from, like, a year ago. Right. Like, it was all just kind of, like, fast fashion knockoffs of very recent Alaya collections, very specific silhouettes. And then... The back half of the collection was kind of like fake Versace. Look, I don't want to shade our queen for, you know, getting that coin or whatever, but the idea of Naomi Campbell selling us a pair of $25 high heels, there's just something so surreal and preposterous about that. Because her whole brand is basically like, I'm a luxury that very few can afford. 
it's tough because we ourselves were first in line for like the Isaac Mizrahi Target collection. Talk about the first one through the door gets shot. Same thing with Steven Sprouse. He was also an early Target collaborator. It's just hard to justify fast fashion collaborations in the year of our Lord 2023. Well, I can justify them, but I think Pretty Little Thing it's like these clothes are so, so cheaply made that you couldn't wash them. Like it's like a, I'm wearing this once and then it's done kind of thing. Like I don't think like a Naomi Campbell pretty little thing sheer crop top can withstand more than one washing. I'm looking at the shoes that you're talking about. That one, one is $30, but it just instantly I can see blisters forming on my feet. This past week, we got the very unexpected Steven Mizell for Zara collaboration. Yeah, so do you think that this collaboration was to promote the book that was just released with his work with Linda Evangelista? I honestly have no idea why this happened. Not that there's not a market for it. Of course there is. But like from his point of view, I'm like, did you want to design clothes was the check so good that you just wanted the check? But it's like, you don't need the check. You're probably the highest paid photographer in the world. In my mind, there's only one item worth purchasing, which would be the gigantic Steven Mizell cashmere scarf. <laughs> okay. Would you rock that though? No, we would get it framed. I actually think that like there were good clothes in this collection because everything was very practical, right? Like I'm not against Steven Mizell trying to sell me a black parka or a pair of faux leather pants or a denim shirt like nothing was really that trendy and it does feel like the kind of practical pieces that like people would actually wear but I feel like the stuff that says Steven Mizell is very like unintentionally campy the branding is very similar to Saint Laurent call me crazy but I don't think of Steven Mizell as a sans serif kind of guy I think of him as a very thin serif kind of guy like a Bodoni kind of bitch you know like the cover of the Linda Evangelista book that just came out he does have a very distinct silhouette not one that I would would think would lend itself to like a 25 piece collection but for menswear that look is very current because it is very Balenciaga it's all black it's oversized it's that sort of thing but when I first saw this collection I was more shocked I was like oh wow I can't believe Steven Mizell is trying to sell me like a faux fur women's coat before he's trying to sell me a book that's like the definitive overview of his career which does not exist it doesn't. I imagine it would be $1,200 and it would be money well well spent. I think with someone like Mizell, and I think the same way about Pat McGrath, it's like, don't even try and just do one book. Do like a 10-volume set of encyclopedias because that's actually what's what's necessary. Although I do think it's kind of wild and unexpected that he chose to put his drawings on some of these clothes before like his actual photographs. Like surely you have some like, I don't know, fucked up negative of some photo you took when you were 18. I had that thought too, but I imagine any photo that Zara suggested they use for licensing reasons. I'm sure Madonna would have been like, no, you can't use that photo. I'm sure he has some personal work with like unfamous people or something, but... I learned from the Zara collab that he's actually a pretty good illustrator. Like it's giving Francesco Clemente, it's giving Ethan Hawke <laughs> in Great Expectations. 
if Ethan Hawke and Great Expectations was like drawing Linda Evangelista and Betty Catru and shit. Maybe we should buy those <laughs> those teas, come to think of it. Those Francisco Clemente drawings of Gwyneth Paltrow from Great Expectations, pretty good. But to close this out, if there's one thing I want from this collection, it's the faux fur trapper hat. I feel like that's the piece. I don't know if it's sold out yet. I need to look, but I feel like that's what I most want. May I pitch a Halloween costume for you? Go for it. Myself. I don't know if I'm androgynous enough to pull that off, but some dyke could slay if like they really contoured the cheekbones. Tad is myself. You as Linda Evangelista. Me as Linda Evangelista post-cool sculpting? No. <laughs> You have a beautiful bone structure, oh, Chelsea. Oh, thank you, honey. And to go backwards to the only show that we care to talk about from New York Fashion Week, Peter Dew, as I learned. It's not Doe, it's Dew. Peter Dew's Helmet Lang debut. What a mouthful. To Kathy Horn's point, not a lot of designers are taking risks. Yeah, I mean, before Peter Dew took over at Helmet Lang, you would say that there's no better designer to take over Helmet Lang's brand and I would have said the same thing, but those first four looks that had those T-Mobile magenta belt details was really, <laughs> it was really rough it's to so see. so T-Mobile, you're right. That's exactly what it is. Now, the yellow belted looks with the suit, I enjoyed, but that T-Mobile magenta really bothered me. But the yellow stuff looked a little too off-white adjacent. Like it looked like those off-white belts that they've been doing. Yes, the origins of a lot of these pieces are in old Helmet Lang pieces. And, and the best ideas in this collection are basically recycled. But everything just feels so sanitized and commercial and joyless. And again, like not edgy, which people forget. But Helmet Lang, very edgy designer at the time. And that's the thing. At the time... The work that he was doing was edgy, but if you recreate Helmut Lang's looks from the 90s now, it just looks like expensive theory. And yes, that's very insulting, and I mean it that way, but I love Peter Dew's work. Like, there is a cheekiness to his tailoring in his own work that I felt was missing from this collection. Yeah, I agree that his own collections are better than this. But I think that the real nail in the proverbial coffin was the slogan tease, which felt so outdated, so uncool. It just, th this whole thing just like bummed me out so much. And then I had a moment where I was like, wait, like Helmut Lang is actually not that expensive compared to a lot of these other luxury brands. Like you could buy a dress that's $300 from Helmut Lang. Maybe we should look at it through that lens. But then I was like, wait, like Diesel, which is cunt, is also not that expensive. And you can also buy a $300 dress from Diesel. So there's actually like no excuse for this to like not slay. We were with your mother when she was in town when this collection debuted and she was just you know our mothers are very similar they always see the you know the, the glass is half full for them and she was trying to be like well you know I'm sure he was trying his hardest and you were like you know he was and then you had this 
whole cycle I saw you go through where you were like, wait, no, fuck this collection. I also was like, Chelsea, do you remember the colors of Benetton dress that's in this collection? No, there's no excuse. And evidently we're the only people that had this opinion. You know when you used to go into Club Monaco and like everything's black and white and gray, but then there's like the lime section of the store, the fuchsia section of the store. Like they pick like one color and then like make a bunch of like bad clothes with it. It feels like that. It really makes you appreciate someone that does have a good sense of color like a Michu Blasey like a Dries Van Noten well we should say that the slogan tees were taking pieces of poetry by Ocean Vong and putting them on a shirt I'd actually rather not know that (laughs) I want no context when you google the word poet his name comes up now basically like he's the most famous poet but also like there's no excuse for a shirt that says my life is a weapon held to my throat so I could sing. They lied to you. No one here was ever ugly. It's giving Parson Senior Project for someone that partied all year. Absolutely. Well, and it's sad because it's like, I really want Helmet Lang to succeed as a brand because in New York City or in the United States, there are only so many heritage brands that we have here And a lot of them have kind of fallen by the wayside. Like Calvin Klein no longer has runway shows. Halston has like never figured its shit out. Helmet Lang is like one of the few brands that we have that is like, it's still perceived as very cool. It has immediate name recognition. We're at a point in fashion that is so like, everything is so over the top and attention seeking. And it feels like when Helmet Lang himself came along, it was a similar kind of period in fashion where everything was very maximalist and over the top and he presented a very opposite definition of beauty that was very subversive and refreshing and I just want the modern equivalent of that now with this brand because there's no reason why this brand shouldn't succeed right now it doesn't make sense the vintage market for helmet Lang is insane I think the other issue of like what to do with a helmet Lang now is that subversive anti-fashion fashion in a way has been transposed to what people love to call like Scandi style, Scandinavian style, uh, the row, all of that shit. I'm not saying to do a rowification of Helmet Lang. I'm just saying that I think when girls at Erewhon are dressing in like baggy, nicely tailored pants and a shirt, Helmet Lang has to be something different. It has to match the moment that we're in for sure. Because you invoke the row, it's like, that's another problem with American fashion right now is that all the designers that we have that are like extremely cunt no longer show in New York. They all show in Paris. Like Rick Owens. I mean, even Vaquera isn't in New York. It's like so depressing when it comes to big brands with a heritage, with brand recognition. Those brands are really suffering. The best brand that we have is Marc Jacobs. And even he is not showing every season anymore. And not even for very long. Right? His last show was like three minutes. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's what I meant. We get three minutes of Marc Jacobs for an entire year. And we have to hope that that sustains us. Speaking of sustaining us, shall we get into Kardashians? Kardashaholics Anonymous. This is a case for the FBI. (laughs) Okay. Not Kim being the comic relief on this show. That was the biggest shock to me. I woke up this morning and... 
I mean, take a Daily Mail headline for what it's worth, but they were like, Kim getting slammed for her acting. I was like, she's kind of the best thing in it. Like, I don't think her acting is that different from Emma Roberts acting in, in the episode I saw. By the way, we're talking about American Horror Story. <laughs> American Horror Story Delicate. The first episode came out this week. I think Kim was really good. My favorite line that she did deliver with excellent comic timing you on a bad day is like Hillary Swank on a good day. <laughs> well, she was referring to her skills like on camera, like in a late night talk show capacity. This season is about Emma Roberts. Essentially, it's like, what if we just made Rosemary's Baby now? Mixed with dead ringers, that sort of thing, which is a genre that I really love. This is so up my alley. When I watched the opening sequence, I was like, I'm in. Like, I'm not not going to watch this show. Well, as people who've been off of a American Horror Story for what feels like a decade. I was like, we're back, baby. We're so back. Well, when did you fall off American Horror Story? I can't even remember. I fell off during Hotel, which was the Lady Gaga one based on the, what's that hotel called? The Hotel Cecile. For those of you who don't live in Los Angeles, there is a very haunted hotel in what? The Fashion District? Yeah, in downtown Los Angeles. Richard Ramirez... The Night Stalker stayed there. It was a very disturbing case from maybe 10 years ago about a woman who was found in the water tank. Just... But nothing was more disturbing than the Ryan Murphy adaptation of that story. So I fell off, even though you know I'm ride or die for Ryan Murphy, I have not watched American Horror Story since then. Although I am a very big fan of Asylum. Yeah, I think I fell off when Ryan Murphy moved over to Netflix. I'm very into where this season is going because, as I was saying before, it's like, what if Rosemary's baby just had more Andy Cohen in it and I'm here for this. <laughs> the fact that Kim's first line was suck my clit was incredible and it made me think like is she just copying Chris Jenner like is this how Chris Jenner conducts business because she's playing a high-powered publicist and I feel like that is a very adjacent job to her mom being a high-powered manager. It's not a one-note storyline either. I was very moved to learn, spoilers if you haven't watched the episode, that her and Emma Roberts met at an IVF support group. Kim's got a backstory. She has multiple layers. Also, the thought that has been put into Emma Roberts' fictional Hollywood career as a former child star that was stuck in some sort of CW, and they say CW, purgatory, where she was in some sort of like Baywatch meets Dawson's Creek-esque show, and now she was in an indie film that no one thought would do well. And She was in Hereditary, basically. Oh, you're right. That is probably what the comp is. I couldn't figure it out. And yes, yeah. unlike Toni Collette, she is nominated for an Oscar. <laughs> Or we believe that she will be. I think Kim is really doing a lot because no one else on the show is funny. Everyone else on the show is very stern and creepy. If Kim wasn't in this role, it would probably be Leslie Grossman. Like, this is very much a Leslie Grossman, Ryan Murphy role. Also, can we talk about Cara Delevingne's transformation? Because Kim and Emma Roberts basically look like themselves. Cara Delevingne looks like she got the most extreme, like, ion flux, like, Stefano Pilati YSL era makeover or something. And is just, I mean, she hasn't uttered a word yet, but I'm excited to hear more from her. Yes, I just looked on IMDb. Kim is slated to be in four episodes. This is part one, I assume, 
because of the strike. We should say that Kim was definitely a scab while shooting the show. Scab for the WGA strike, but the SAG strike had not happened yet. And then production was shut down when the SAG strike happened. So that is the story. So yes, people have been criticizing the cast members for being scabs, which, you know, Ryan Murphy is, I suppose, the biggest scab involved in all of this. Also, do you think that the person in a hood that like comes into Emma Roberts' bedroom at night, like that has to be Cara Delevingne, right? Like that is the skinniest masked intruder I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Like it could not be a man. Well, you know, you go back to American Horror Story season one with Evan Peters in the gimp suit. Uh, what else? There's a rumor that Kim Kardashian is maybe dating Odell Beckham Jr., but I don't, I don't care. Yeah, that news to me registered like the news that Taylor Swift is like maybe dating that football guy. Football don't care. All right, babe, this has been enlightening. To who? (laughs) To no one. To absolutely no one. It's been fun to talk to you about all this stuff, though, and we will be back next week talking about the supermodel documentary, talking about Milan Fashion Week, And um, whatever tragic celebrity news stories are coming down the pipeline. Yeah, perhaps we need to make this a mainstay segment. Are celebrities okay? The answer might surprise you. Until next week. All right, bye guys. (laughs) 